In writing this paper, I have, so to speak, made good a promise which for many years I lacked the courage to fulfill. The difficulties of the problem and its presentation seem to me too great. Too great the intellectual responsibility without which such a subject cannot be tackled. Too inadequate, in the long run, my scientific training. If I have now conquered my hesitation and at last come to grips with my theme, it is chiefly because my experiences of the phenomenon of synchronicity have multiplied themselves over the decades. While on the other hand, my reaches into the history of symbols, and of the fish symbol in particular, brought the problem ever closer to me. And finally, because I have been alluding to the existence of this phenomenon on and off in my writings for 20 years without discussing it any further. I would like to put a temporary end to this unsatisfactory state of affairs by trying to give a consistent account of everything I have to say on this subject. I hope it will not be construed as presumption on my part if I make uncommon demands on the open-mindedness and goodwill of the reader. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's December 10th, 2020, and today we're going to begin an epic quest to understand the quantum nature of cause and effect. And we'll do so with acclaimed science writer and physicist, Dr. Paul Halpern. Halpern is the author of 16 popular science books exploring the subjects of space, time, higher dimensions, dark energy, dark matter, exoplanets, particle physics, and cosmology. The recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Fulbright Scholarship, an Athenium Literary Award. He has contributed to Nature, Physics Today, Aeon, Nova's The Nature of Reality Physics blog, and Forbes Starts with a Bang. He has appeared on numerous radio and television shows, including Future Quest, Radio Times, Coast to Coast AM, The Simpsons 20th Anniversary Special, and C-SPAN's Book TV. Halpern's latest book, Synchronicity, traces the history of cosmic connections, instantaneous and delayed from ancient times until the modern quantum era. It centers on the dialogue between psychologist Carl Jung and his Nobel Prize winning patient physicist Wolfgang Pauli as they investigated a-causal relationships in nature and explored the possibility of links between matter and the mind. Synchronicity tells that sprawling tale of insight and creativity and asks where these ideas, some plain crazy and others crazy powerful, are taking the human story next. More information about Dr. Halpern's books and other writings can be found at his website, phalpern.com. It really, truly is a great honor to be hosting him today. How are you doing today, Paul? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. I'm very excited to <laughs> you talk bet. to you. Thank you. You bet. Um, well, let's start with you as a writer. And to begin with, do you think of yourself as like a scientific biographer or a scientific historian? Well, it's kind of evolved that way that I've become interested in the history of physics. Uh, I started off exploring general relativity in my PhD thesis, and then once I got my PhD, 
back in 1987, I was a, a little bit tired of mathematical calculations, understandably, because I was immersed in it for so long. And I decided to start writing books. And my first book, Time Journeys, which came out about 30 years ago, delved into philosophy, delved into a little bit of history. But at that point, I wasn't really rigorous about my history. But as I went on as a writer, I discovered the joy of going to archives and exploring online archives, as well as in-person archives, interviewing people. And I became fascinated by the history of physics and the history of ideas. Well, it seems like you write a, a lot about the, you know, the biggies. Do you have a do you have a favorite or favorites? Well, I've become interested over the years in the life of Albert Einstein, but also some of his associates. I'm interested in ideas about space and time, everything from time travel prediction, ideas about exoplanets, uh, the history of the universe and the fate of the universe. You know, I try to explore all those topics in various books. And then does a writer of popular science read popular science or do you read more academic, rigorous works? I occasionally will read um, popular science books, but I try to get the information for my books from primary sources as much as possible. So I look a lot at oral histories like archives, which have uh, interviews with people, direct interviews. The books I read in preparation for my own books tend to be things that focus on the science and have also uh, direct access uh, to interviews and archival materials, um, which is a change from how I originally conducted my books. Um, when I originally started to write, I would just go to a library. Back then, everybody used physical libraries, of course, and I would just browse through various books and collect what information I could find. But now I find that most of my writing is based upon interviews and archival material. Um, I, I do occasionally read um, scientific biographies, and uh, one of my favorites is uh, The Strangest Man by Graham Farmello, uh, which is a biography of Dirac, and uh, really amazing. Uh, but I also, I read a lot of fiction and, uh, I try to vary my, my, uh, fun reading to, to sort of supplement the stuff that I do for, you know, for my career reading. What, what kind of fiction do you enjoy reading? Well, I've been working my way through a book called The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. Uh, it's taken, taken a while for me to read that. I, I've had a lot of distractions. I'm active on Twitter and that tends to take up a lot of time. And also writing books tends to take up a lot of time, as well as preparing for teaching, especially in, in these times, which are unusual times uh, for teaching. But um, I, I also, in my day, read a lot of science fiction. And uh, I like uh, Connie Willis, give a shout out, and uh, in terms of modern science fiction writers. But when I was, was young, I read a lot of uh, works by Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein sort of the standard canon of science fiction works. And then as, as uh, your practice as a writer, this is one of these things that always comes up on this show. You know, how do you write kind of when inspiration strikes? Are you the kind of person that needs a certain routine and a certain space? How is it that you perform your writing? Well, uh, for a while, until uh, the pandemic hit, I was going a lot to 
various coffee shops and I'd get a cup of coffee and a snack and sit there and isolate myself a little bit and wait until I was inspired to, you know, write things. Um, some, some forms of writing are a bit routine and then some of them are more inspired. Um, occasionally I'll wake up and have like a couple of paragraphs in my head and I just have to find a piece of paper and write it down, which is, is really pretty amazing. Um, when the, the muse hits, as they say, um, it, I, it's, it's, it's really delightful when, um, I have like a whole paragraph or a few paragraphs in my head and I just need to write it down. It just seems almost magical when ha that happens. But if I try to force that to happen, it's not going to happen. It just usually happens when I'm really involved in a book and I'm thinking about it a lot. And it seems like there are background processes going on in my head, which are producing, um, prose in the background and I just have to kind of listen to what's going on and and write it down which is pretty amazing and after you know you, you mentioned 30 years for your first book does it get is it difficult I'm, I'm curious about how is every book different or you know uh, does it get easier I think in some ways that things have gotten easier not necessarily with experience but the internet has really made things incredibly easy because uh, I used to have to go in terms of archival material to many, many physical libraries. And I still do so. Uh, for example, for synchronicity, I went to the Young um, Archive at uh, the ETH in Zurich, uh, which is a, a university in Zurich and look through physical materials and, and physical letters. But, but so much stuff is online now, and that makes it so much easier because I don't actually have to travel physically to those places. And especially in the time of a pandemic, it makes uh, online stuff is essential. Uh, and that really speeds things up a lot. On, on the other hand, what slows me down sometimes is just the distractions of the internet. So the internet has... A lot of pluses and minuses. If you can stay focused, it's an amazing time saver. But if you're not focused, you can um, delve into a labyrinth of articles that can be very distracting. And, you know, checking the news and checking other things can just be a big uh, time waster. So I try to stay as focused as possible, but I'm not always successful. I guess I also have uh, a curiosity about uh, note taking. I imagine a historian has to read a lot of material. Uh, are you? You must be fairly organized and able to to track a lot of different things. Yeah, I, some of that is is mental. I try to to track um, different time periods and keep keep track of the order of things. But also, I I keep a lot of files. Uh, sometimes they're physical folders where I just collect all the articles, you know, print out and collect articles about a single topic and, uh, you know, maybe to organize that into subtopics. And quite often these days though, there are, there are photo folders on my computer, which, uh, house different subjects. And I try to organize things according to subjects, according to time frames, and so forth. So now you name this book Synchronicity, and you, it does have to do with Carl Jung and his 
his work, but at the same time, you're also dealing with quantum physics relationship to that. Uh, what was the audience you were shooting for with this book? I think you're probably getting a lot of people who, you know, were coming for something, you know, other than quantum physics, probably. Well, it, it certainly is not, is not designed to be a self-help book. Um, so I think that's a big, big misconception about my book is some books with the title synchronicity in them are a part of the kind of self-help genre, which, which I really, I really appreciate. And I think that's an important genre, but I'm, I, I chose that title just to re reflect on the idea of a causal connections. And I could have named the book a causal connections throughout time, but that would not be as fun a title as just calling it synchronicity. So, um, what I did is I kind of borrowed Carl Jung's expression and applied it not just to his work, but also to stuff that he studied and others studied about the history of connections in nature. So I feel that it's fair to apply that title to things that go all the way back to the ancient Greeks because Jung and Pauli and others uh, in, in developing these ideas look back to the works of the Pythagoreans and the ancient Greeks to try to understand how the Greeks were, were trying to characterize the universe and debate the question of whether or not everything needs a cause and effect or whether or not things can happen instantaneously without a seeming chain of cause and effect. So I start off the book by looking at the chain of causality and a debate between Aristotle and Empedocles, who was not a contemporary, but Aristotle talked about Empedocles about the speed of light. And Aristotle was convinced that light was instantaneous, but he quoted Empedocles as saying that light must take time to travel through space. And uh, Aristotle rebutted in turn that you didn't see light traveling through space from, for instance, from the sun. So therefore it must be instantaneous. And of course, now we know that light has a finite speed and that is the speed of causality, the chain of cause and effect. But we also know through quantum physics that not every process requires a chain of cause and effect. Some processes can happen through um, entanglement, which is something that is simultaneous or near simultaneous in terms of connections. Well, so one of the reasons why I found your, your book so fascinating in the first half is because you're showing the co-development of both science and mysticism. And so you're not only providing a history of science, but you're, you know, at the same time, you know, showing the philosophical thought and how that encouraged the development of science. Do you feel like that relationship still exists on some level? Well, I think um, science started off with close ties to some mystical ideas. For example, astronomy and astrology were close cousins, if not almost considered identical uh, back in ancient times. So uh, those who could predict, for example, eclipses were called upon by rulers to predict events in human life. And um, there's still a great interest in that subject. I think nowadays, though, scientists look for things that are objectively verified and um, reproducible. 
So um, most scientists would say, okay, to test things, you need to have many, many research groups working on the same topic, and they need to be able to verify each other's data and to run it through statistics and make sure that there is no um, discrepancy and that everything is objectively correct. And that, that for example, is the main criticism of uh, J.B. Ryan, who uh, is, of course, one of the um, big uh, researchers in parapsychology at um, uh, University of North Carolina. And Ryan uh, didn't really open up his work to other groups and other groups, you know, haven't been able to verify his results. Um, so um, that's why you know, parapsychology is has never entered the scientific canon um, as a as a verifiable objective science. Although you know people who believe in it through a kind of faith or you know or follow it, and I respect that. But um, you know physicists and and psychologists, mainstream psychologists would only accept a field if the field is objectively verifiable by numerous research groups. Yeah, and speaking to that, uh, as, as science progresses, you also speak about different folks that are working through their um, intuition as well, but they also have these strange little beliefs. Like I think, I, I don't remember which scientist, but... Um, like a faith in the idea of symmetry. And sometimes these these beliefs really pay off for them, but sometimes they also lead them astray. Were you, in writing this and studying that, did you find any present-day blind spots? So uh, that's a really good question because um, symmetry is something that has really aided science. Um, this idea that if you look at something in the mirror image or if you rotate something, or if you change something simple, like change the charge of a particle, then you examine what happens. And often these symmetries lead to uh, exciting new results. For example, a physicist named Paul Dirac developed an equation to try to describe electrons. And the equation had uh, solutions that describes something like electrons, but only positive instead of negative, because electrons are electrically negative. And Dirac correctly predicted that there was a positive counterpart to electrons with the exact same mass and all other properties being the same, but of positive charge. And that turned out to be what we call now positrons. So positrons were predicted through symmetry and they were predicted through a theoretical prediction based on symmetry. Now, today, a lot of physicists believe in something called supersymmetry. Supersymmetry is a connection between matter particles and force-carrying particles. So uh, there are two types of particles in nature. There's matter particles that are often called fermions and force-carrying particles called bosons. And they have different properties that are radically different in terms of their statistics. For example, uh, bosons can clump together into single quantum states as much as they want to. And uh, fermions must stay separate from each other. They can't be all, all grouped together in the same quantum state. I like to think of it as a difference between a formal orchestra concert with uh, formal seating 
in the case of fermions where everybody has to have their own seat versus a punk rock concert where everybody runs up in front of the stage into a mosh pit and crowd crowds together that's what bosons are like they can just crowd together and and they're and bosons represent energy um, that connects particles and creates a force for example a photon which is a light particle is a boson now many physicists think that there's something called supersymmetry which is a way to kind of rotate in an abstract space fermions and turn them into bosons kind of flip them through a, another dimension and and turn them into turn uh, matter particles into force particles well theoretically that seems to be a very reasonable way to proceed and a lot of theorists believe in that idea and uh, but the problem is no experiment so far has given any hints that that is true so it could be a false path it could be a dead end we really don't know uh, we keep conducting experiments colliding particles together to look for evidence of supersymmetry but so far there's been no evidence so it could be just a mirage that there's some kind of connection between those those kinds of particles <laughs> and so for the last decade i've been reading a lot of popular science books interested in quantum mechanics but i think having more of a literary mind it's because and probably this was the same for Carl Jung. There's just such great metaphors in this realm. But upon reading your book, I realized that so little of what I'd read did not stick and that I really, I don't understand quantum physics. Um, I recall previously I had this idea for a quantum wrapper named Qubit but then I forgot the premise. <laughs> Would Qubit be uh, scheduled to perform in two places and on the same time and you wouldn't know where they're performing until you went to the club? Or would it be that Qubit would actually perform in two locations at the same time? Okay, well, that's a great great idea. I like that, that name. Um, so uh, so uh, if, if we're talking about quantum entities, uh, quantum entities can can span a large range of of space and be essentially at, at a whole bunch of places at the same time. But um, but that's because quantum wave functions uh, don't have to be localized at one point. They can spread out. And in fact, that's what happens in general. They they spread out over time and. When they spread out, though, note that they are probability waves. So they, they tell you the chances of a particle being in a, in a particular place. But then when we take a measurement, often that quantum wave function becomes localized at a particular point, and it gives a finite, definite answer as to where something is located. So imagine with your, your qubit scenario, um, qubit would be at a whole bunch of clubs, but then as soon as a someone in the audience comes into one of the clubs to observe qubit, uh, qubit would suddenly be localized to that club and not other clubs. Um, so uh, it would be w once qubit is observed, that would be uh, the trigger for 
him becoming localized in one particular club. Okay. Um, you make so light is is primary for the development of science and the backbone of this book. Do you think science could ever make consciousness, you know, the backbone of a of a similar study? And another good question. Uh, consciousness is is a great mystery. It's it's one of the greatest mysteries in science. Um, and part of that is this idea that if you have a system, and, and let's say a mathematical system, it's it's very hard for the system to describe itself and uh, to justify itself. So I'm referring to uh, Kurt Gödel's incompleteness theorem. If you have a standard mathematical system, there is always going to be something uncertain or, or indeterminate in that mathematical system. And uh, uh, Gödel uh, said there might be a, a sentence or a statement that can't be resolved to be either true or false. It's indeterminate. So, for example, if you take the statement, this sentence is false, you don't know if the sentence is true or false, because if you say it's true, it must be false. If you say it's false, it must be true. So that is an example of a paradox, which is which which is not self-consistent. And those things exist in the world of mathematics. And the only way to understand uh, mathematics is to kind of step outside of it and to kind of look at it from outside of its set of, of theorems. And similarly, I think that only, uh, strangely enough, I think to describe consciousness, um, you almost need to be stepping outside of the, the, uh, the role of conscious entities. Perhaps if you imagine, you know, uh, extraterrestrial race uh, trying to analyze humans to try to probe what consciousness is, because we, we really can't, it's, it's hard to talk about what consciousness is because it's so much a part of us. So if we're, if we're trying to describe the experience of free will and making choices, it's such a subjective experience, it's hard to quantify that objectively. So it's hard to have an objective measure of something which is absolutely a feeling or a sense. Um, it's, it's just so hard to describe what a sense of free will is like in a way that is quantifiable. And, and I think um, types of artificial intelligence trying to replicate free will are, are in some ways have been doomed to fail because if you try to come up with an algorithm to replicate free will, it necessarily is deterministic and doesn't have a, a sense of making a choice. It, it, the choice is set by the programmer. So, um, so that's the problem with trying to describe consciousness and free will is that um, in a sense, it's all so much of a part of us. You, you'd have to be able to step outside of the, the box, to step outside of what it means to be a conscious entity to really understand it. Yeah. And, and so that'll kind of bring us into one of the, the topics that you look deeply into in Synchronicity, your new book, the idea of pseudoscience and how uh, pseudoscience appears to behave like science, but but um, it really isn't. And so, which is kind of reminding me of how uh, the Dalai Lama, I think, was really 
interested in, in the Western scientific idea because he felt like his own tradition was trying to study consciousness from inside. Um, but anyway, we we need to kind of land on Wolfgang Pauli and, and how the role that he played in your book and his importance um, in physics and to Carl Jung. Could we talk about him a little bit? So Wolfgang Pauli is a very interesting figure in science. He was a uh, quantum physicist, and he excelled at a very young age. At the age of 20, he wrote a pivotal study of relativity. Um, that was in 1920, uh, right when relativity was a very new thing. And it impressed the entire physics community. And he was heralded as a wunderkind, as a, as a boy genius, although he wasn't really a boy then, but he was very young and possibly the successor to Albert Einstein. And then as he developed his work, he came up with some incredible insights, including this idea of the exclusion principle, which is why fermions, as I mentioned before, have to all stay in their own quantum state. They can't bunch into a single quantum state. And he came up with the idea of neutrinos, which are a lightweight particle that's electrically neutral that explains certain situations in physics. So that's that's what uh, the exclusion principle is what got him the Nobel Prize. And when he got the Nobel Prize, Einstein, uh, in essence, proclaimed him as, as a successor in terms of, of ideas. So Pauli had a brilliant career, but in 1930, he went through a very hard period in his life. Uh, it was right after couple years earlier, his, his mother committed suicide because his father was having an extramarital affair, and Pally was very upset about that. And then he got married to a woman who was in love with a chemist, and uh, not sure why they got married, but then uh, the woman, woman was a cabaret dancer, and she uh, continued to see the chemist, even though she was married to Pally, and finally uh, Pally and her got divorced uh, within a year. And that was a very disappointing time for him, a very depressing time. And uh, he was really troubled by relationships and finally turned to Carl Jung to try to resolve um, his issues with the relationships. And, and Carl Jung set him up with uh, a young uh, assistant, Erna Rosenbaum, who was, uh, you know, because Pauli had issues with, with uh, relationships with women, he thought a female therapist would be appropriate. And she taught him how to write down his dreams. And he ended up writing all in all over a span of a few years, um, more than a thousand dreams. It was pretty remarkable. And, um, and then um, Jung eventually accessed the, the dreams and interpreted them in terms of their symbolism. And Pauli became, over time, big believer in Jungian archetypes, Jungian symbolism. He had some doubts. He was a very skeptical person and was very cynical and skeptical about his science, but he, he bought into Jungian ideas for a time. And uh, finally, in uh, Pauli's final year of life, he seemed to break with the Jungian community and also um, break with um, the idea of parapsychology, expressed doubts about parapsychology. And Pauli wrote a letter to J.B. Rhine that 
was received by Rhine only after uh, Pauli's death in 1958. And um, Rhine was very upset because in that letter, Pauli expressed some doubts about Rhine's work. And uh, Jung had to eventually calm down uh, J.B. Rhine and say, well, no, 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 it's not it's not a big deal. And and uh, Pauli was was mistaken and so forth. But things ended with Pauli returning to a kind of skeptical ideas. But it's interesting that Pauli and also Pauli's con uh, colleague, uh, Pascal Jordan, a German physicist, were very much interested in these ideas, despite being uh, quantum physicists who were very rigorous about their science. Well, so you've invoked J.B. Rhine a couple of times now, and um, if people don't know, he's the one famous for the cards, right? The parapsychology card tests. I think they they uh, do something similar. Bill Murray does in, in the movie Ghostbusters. But so one of the criticisms uh, by like pseudoscientists maybe <laughs> would be that, and and it's interesting that you mentioned that Pauli's kind of had a, a breakdown and that's what led him to Carl Jung is that uh, some of these um, parapsychology results that they're getting above chance happen because of emotion and that it's hard to reproduce the kind of uh, heightened whatever, whether it's not, whether it's stress or love or something that is, is causing, um, a measured effect. Have you considered that, or did you run into that in your in your your study of this? Well, I I didn't delve into the into the actual experiments done by J. B. Ryan and other parapsychologists, but uh, I know about the criticism of those. But I I, I think I think yes that that's um, a problem if if an experiment has to do with individual emotionality, then uh, the individual experiments are suspect unless you manage to get um, many, many, many teams to conduct experiments and ideally what are called double-blind experiments where the experimenter and the person being um, measured uh, don't know each other and everything's objective and uh, if you do that for enough cases and uh, do it in an objective way and, you know, a, a way that uh, rigorously statistical way, then you can establish whether or not there's an effect. Um, but individual incidents, especially based upon uh, emotional states, are very hard to quantify scientifically. Now, that said... Um, I, I have a great deal of respect for people who report situations in their life or incidents in their life. I just wouldn't uh, characterize it as falling into the realm of scientific inquiry. Scientific inquiry has very high standards, but if somebody says, oh, I had this experience, I'm not going to say, no, you didn't have that experience. I'm going to um, talk to them about it and, you know, and, you know, I, it's not really my field to to look at, um, you know, psychological experiences or personal experiences. But as 
as you know, putting on a non-scientific hat as a human being, I'm of course interested in, you know, emotional responses that people have. Um, I talk all the time to people, you know, without without invoking science about experiences they've had in their lives, things that horrify them, things that delight them, things that shock them. You know, it's it's just part of being human is to is to talk about emotional states and reactions and fears and hopes and things like that. And and that's what happened with the J.B. Ryan. I think uh, uh, when other labs tried to duplicate the successes, then it seemed like um, it became less and less clear that it was, um, you could duplicate their initial results. And then piggybacked on that, could we talk about the Pauli effect, which is, you know, if people have heard, that's one of the other things that people know about Pally. And as a, bio, a biographer of Pally, was that a real thing or just something that kind of got glommed onto him? So the Pally effect is that um, a lot of scientists felt that if Pally, who was a theoretical physicist, walked into a lab, equipment would break, things wouldn't work, um, things would shatter glass speakers would, you know, suddenly fly off the table and smash on the floor, things like that. So um, it, it's kind of amusing to consider it. Uh, personally, I, I kind of doubt that he had this kind of ability to do things like that, but it's kind of fun to talk about it. But Pauli himself started to con convince himself that it had something to do with um, synchronicity and a causal connections. And particularly when Jung uh, opened his brand new institute in 1948. Uh, Pauli came in and a vase uh, fell off of a shelf and smashed on the floor and, and started to flood the floor. And Pauli was thinking about the works of Robert Flood, a, an early um, mathematician and astronomer who was, who was a contemporary of Kepler. And uh, Pauli thought, well, maybe it was me who did this from the, through the Pauli effect and wrote to Jung about that, and they talked about it in terms of synchronicity. Um, but, uh, you know, once again, uh, you would have to measure something like that objectively and, and see if statistically there are more incidents than usual because of Pauli's presence. And supposedly even Pauli could be even in the same city and things would happen. So you'd have to look at those incidents objectively. And, and my guess is you wouldn't really find uh, a, a strong effect. <laughs> so then do you think uh, Carl's young synchronicity will live on? Do you think science is going to pick this back up? Yeah, I think the, the, the importance of it is just Jung pointing out that we need to look at a causal connections as well as causal connections. And science is already addressing that through examining the phenomenon of entanglement. So uh, ultimately, though, we need to find what the, what is the connection between these a-causal connections, which is quantum entanglement, and causal connections, which are things like electromagnetic radiation going through space. And an ultimate theory of everything would take both into account. Okay. Now, here's the real curveball. So before they understood gravitation... And before there was field, like a gravitational field theory, they still had this kind of 
faith in the idea of of gravitation do you think there could be like a synchronicity web like a sync web that we just don't understand that field yet or do you think that's just too wackadoo out there well there there's quantum field theory so quantum field theory allows for connections that are, are remote through the process of entanglement so that already exists it's called quantum field theory the question though is uh, what the connection is between quantum field theory and, as you mentioned, gravitation, which has its own field. And that's an open question, uh, the question of quantum gravity, how you can reconcile uh, gravitational fields, which happen from point to point and are spatially connected, versus quantum fields, which seem, in essence, to ignore spatial distances and can be indefinitely uh, connected and, uh, you know, a bridge very long spatial distances. And that is an open question. Well, so what, what are you working on next? Do you work on one book at a time or do you have multiple things going? What can we expect from you soon? Well, I'm, I'm continuing to work in the history of science and, uh, not prepared to, uh, reveal the details yet, but sure. I, I will have a book next year on uh, that with a history of science theme. So watch out for, for 2021 uh, for new history of science book out. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Uh, my pleasure. Really enjoyed it. You bet. You've been listening to Dr. Paul Halpern on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. For more information about his work and his writings, visit his website, phalpern.com, to which we'll link for more information about the SyncBook, our guests, Chicat Pass shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others, as currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. Feel free to use the search engine to explore the connections. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And had she taken a bullfighter, I would have understood. But such an ordinary chemist... Oh, no, 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 no.